Well, I trust, Westmount, that is your heart that you've brought to this place today. You've come ready to behold your king. And nothing more, just to behold him, which means to come to give him worship. And let's do that now with the word that he has left with us to give it our attention. Grab your copy of God's word and turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, that's our residence this morning. You're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. Glad that you're here to worship the King with us, and you'll find a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, just look in the rack in front of you. Please take one of those, follow along with us, Romans chapter 13, that's where we are. This morning, we arrive at this chapter, and we will begin this morning a consideration of its contents. Now, before we get to the specifics in Romans 13, we need to keep the context, the run-up in mind. And we've been trying to do this in our study in Romans, just keeping the context, keeping the argument as we go. It's very, very important to study this letter and really all the books of the Bible, Paul's letters in particular. This letter to Rome, the Roman church, is about the gospel of God. The indicatives, or we would say the what of the gospel, well, that was our consideration from chapters 1 through 11. You remember that? What is the gospel of God? And as chapter 12 opened, as we hit that hinge, Paul moved from gospel indicatives to gospel implications, to gospel imperatives. Now, in other words, this is what it is. Now, this is what you must go and do in light of the gospel of God. Simply, Paul has turned now in chapters 12 through to chapter 15, we'll see this, these following chapters, to the gospel life, to the gospel life lived out. What we see and what we will see is that the gospel affects every part of life. This is, and I just need to pause as we begin, this is so arresting for us, is it not, in the church culture that we're in today. I might submit, myself included, all of us are going to be tempted, and maybe we are, when we gather in this place, to check out of the gospel when we leave. Maybe not intentionally, right? I've done church. Now I have a whole bunch of things to do. Well, I pray this is shattered as we go through Romans. There is no aspect of your life, beloved, that doesn't come under the gospel of God. And and this effect of the gospel of God on the totality of the believer has been an organized consideration for the Apostle Paul in Romans so far in chapter 12. There's been nothing disordered here, and let's just recap how precise this flow has been. It is very good. Consider with me chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We saw instruction on believers' relationship to God. And what was the call? Remember, it was a corporate call, church, to present our bodies, our whole selves, nothing less. Then in verses 3 to 13, as you see them, we studied instruction on believers' relationship to each other. And remember, the believer was called to not just love, There's lots of love today, isn't there? So we may think. Genuine love. Genuine agape love for each other. 
Then in verses 14 to 21, we received instruction on believers' relationship to unbelievers, or we could say more specifically, enemies. And we were called counterintuitive to our nature, our original nature at times, we're called to bless them. Bless them, bless your enemies. Next, this letter will cover the believer's relationship to the state or the government, which is where we're at. Now, I also need to begin to say, I I hardly need to tell you that this topic has been the source of much confusion in recent times. Lots of ink spilled on this in our current day. And by the way, lots of blood was spilt in church history by those that rightly and wrongly understood the relationship of church and state. Such questions, maybe you have them and you're bringing them this morning. Does the church control the state? Does the state control the church? Do they cooperate with each other? And if so, how? Are they society partners? Does the church have a responsibility to government or vice versa? Westmount, what is the relationship between church and state? Church and governing authorities. What is the relationship? Now, surprisingly, and by the way, I only say surprisingly, given the amount of confusion that there is lately on this, surprisingly, the Bible has an awful lot to say about the church's relationship to government. So to begin this morning, I just simply want to set the table for where we'll be over the coming weeks with a brief New Testament survey, and we're going to start with Jesus. Maybe we'll go there. Put your finger in Romans for a moment, and I, and I pray this, you will see, is very important. Go to Matthew 22. There's so much we would be tempted to say by way of beginning here, but we just want to set the table with the things that are very, very clear and, again, present in Scripture. I think at times you may be tempted to think, given our recent day, that the Scripture doesn't have a lot to say about church and state. Well, it really does. And let's start with Jesus. This is like a platform for what we're going to talk about in this chapter and what Paul does. This is it. Let's begin in verse 15, just to get the context. Listen closely to what Jesus says. Now, to be clear, the context is they're attacking Jesus' authority. Right, And if we were studying Matthew, we'd go into that. What we want to do is he's going to take a picture and an illustration, and we want to jump on that. So let's do this. So verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And then here's... The trap, the question, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here's the question. In one sense, what's the relationship between us and the government, right? That's the question. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, that's interesting, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? So there's the condemnation, but he's going to teach with that condemnation. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Verse 21, they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, and this is just so plain, isn't it? Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, 
I believe what's helpful here is left on its own. You can even imagine the different roads that people will take from this verse. So that's why we need to consider the whole counsel of Scripture. So again, let's continue this brief survey. You can follow along if you want. I'm just going to read these swiftly. Acts 4. Acts 4. This is the early church now relating to the state. In Acts 4, we have Peter and John arrested, appearing before government. Look at Acts 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders, this is government and scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem. And look at this with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family. You can't get more governing authority than that. Go down to verse 18. So they called them and charged them. Here's the charge before the magistrate. Not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The government says to these faithful, don't do that. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Very next chapter, they get arrested, apostles get arrested again. Go to verse 27 of chapter 5. We're going to see this theme, and we're laying groundwork this morning. Keep these texts in mind. Verse 27, after arrested, brought before government again. They brought them, they set them before the council And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, this is a response to government, We must obey God rather than men. That's the early church. What about the apostle Paul? More in Acts. Go to Acts 16. And just keep noting this relationship. Again, I'm refraining from comment. We're going to have much to say as we move along today and in the weeks ahead. But I just want you to observe it. Let the Spirit do the work as you read these texts. Acts 16. Paul is in prison, supernaturally freed. And in the wake of his supernatural freedom, and of course we have the jailer and his house converted. Let's pick up the account in verse 35. But when it was day, after that supernatural, spectacular night escape... When it was day, the magistrates, governments, sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Government says you can go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come out themselves and take us out. Acts 25. Here Paul, later again, under magisterial confinement, right? He, of course, is headed to Jerusalem. That is where he will be going. But he stands before, and what's interesting toward the end of Acts, he's standing before various forms of government. And look what he says here. This is we're just parachuting in. In verse 10, chapter 25, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, as a representative of Caesar, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And note that, I have done nothing wrong. Verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer, and if committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. 
But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Let's just keep putting the pieces together here. This relationship between the faithful, the apostles, the church, and the government. I appeal to Caesar. And then there's the New Testament command. Keep tracking with me, 1 Timothy 2. Let's just flesh out other pieces of this relationship that we're going to unpack this morning. We move from the words of Jesus, right, almost laying the platform. We look at the pictures in the early church. We've looked at Paul's ministry, right, coming to life. And now let's look at New Testament command, commanding definition of this relationship between church and state. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's very clear, is it not? Defining a relationship between us and the state. Go to Titus 3. Titus 3, verse 1. Another of the pastoral epistles. It says this. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, this is to the churches in Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Finally, we move from Paul and the command, and let's close this little survey with the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2. And what we're going to see from Jesus to Peter is a very consistent message. 1 Peter 2, 13, we're going to read those two verses. We're going to come back to the context of this letter in a moment, because that's very important as we do this study. But for now, we're just going to read these verses. Verse 13, chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Back to Romans 13. Of course, most notable of all those is our verse this morning, and you can see why we had to do that survey to start. Romans 13.1, let's read it now. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray as we consider this topic of much debate much confusion, Lord, that you would set our hearts right. Whatever impediments are there, Father, for us seeing your word and receiving it and applying it, Lord, we pray that you would take care of that today and in the weeks ahead. We commit our study to you, begging you to do what only you can do, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I believe, look at Romans 13.1 again. I believe of all the verses and the passages that we read, This one is the most plain. Do you see it? It's very, very plain. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This verse pulls all the verses and passages that we just read together. Whether your bent is seemingly pro-God or seemingly pro-government, it's going to pull these all together, and we're going to unpack this today and in the weeks ahead. The church 
and the governing authorities are not mutually exclusive buckets. It's not that they exist here and they exist here, one inside the other, never the two shall meet. Such thinking, such thinking has bred people living two lives, and maybe you know how this goes. They live the church life and they live the society life, right? Because these things are just so far apart. I live church life, I live society life. Nor is the opposite true. So let's pull them right together where you can't even distinguish the two. Nor is it true the church and state are so conflated as one that they lose distinction. And what do you get from that? Well, the state is God, right? And you, I certainly know that you know what that looks like, especially today. The state becomes God. The state can do no wrong. So look at 13.1 again. Our relationship to government, Westmount, the church's relationship to government, here it is, is one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that we actually relate to God. Do you see that? Very clear there. That's one of the ways, not the only way, that we do. And why do we say that as a thesis this morning? Because government is God's institution. Do you see that? It's God's institution. It's given to us to help us, to organize us, to bless us. Government is God's business. And government, look at verse 1, are God's appointment. This is just so clear. Whatever we're going to say about governments, and you've got a lot of things in your mind about governments right now, they're God's appointment. Without condition. That means the good and the bad governments. The good governments, the bad governments, are God's appointment. You see that? So clear. Now, listen, with that, the issue then is not the mechanism. The issue is not the God-given instrument of government itself. Do you, do you see that? That's not the issue. And good Bereans at Westmount, you know what the issue is, right? The issue is not government. The issue is the governors, right? That's the issue. That's the issue. The problem is governors, not government. Church, what we need then is a righteous governor. Is that not true? Some call it the benevolent dictator, the righteous one. Oh, I can subject myself to that. I can't with these today, but I can with a good one. Now, let's lay this all out as we begin. So it's just all out there on the table for us. Because, church, we already know this. So let's be clear and come out front with it. What we need is, yes, a righteous ruler. And, yes, we already have one. Right? And who is he? Jesus Christ. Right? Enthroned in our hearts, Christians. We are his subjects. He is in heaven now, readying, receiving a kingdom, Luke 19, 12. And we eagerly, all the more in this day, eagerly await his return to rule, Zechariah 14, verse 9. The present government with imperfect rulers is temporal and passing away. Listen, kingdom is coming. This is our hope. Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. Daniel 2, 35. Matthew 13, 47 to 50, Acts 1, 6 and 7. We can go on and on. Yes, that perfect government is coming, but it is not here yet, right? And as the New Testament teaches us regarding church and state, we are aliens, sojourners until Christ returns. That's what 1 Peter 2, 11 teaches us. Looking for a better coming country, Hebrews 11, verse 16. 
We are thus in this world under earthly governments, but not of this world. John 17, verses 11 and 16. As we serve a heavenly eternal king. As we wait then, as we wait, as we sojourn as aliens in this world with citizenship in heaven, Philippians 3, as we wait, we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, Mark 12, verse 17. So what does that look like? That's your question. What does that look like then until we get there? How do we submit to unrighteous rule while we wait for righteous, perfect rule of Christ on earth that is coming? How do we do this? Well, let's begin. Let's dig in and, and study this. We're going to open up Romans 13 today. We're going to pick it up again in a couple of weeks. And today we're going to start with this. Two kinds of authority in this opening verse. Today we're going to consider both that we see here in verse 1. First is this civil authority. That's our first point, civil authority. Verse 1, look at it again with me. Romans 13.1 begins with this. Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities. Now, before we pull apart this verse, we need to be clear on governing authorities as stated here. Governing authorities here speaks of civil authority. This is civil government. So this is the mayor's office, the premier's office, the prime minister's office in Canada. For Christians in other places, this is the president, the prince, the king. These are authorities that preside over a given society, and they govern them, and they rule them. Those are the civil authorities, the physical, earthly civil authorities. That's what's in view. But Westmount, civil authority is just one kind of authority that exists under the sovereignty of God. And this is important for us as we begin this study. That's just one kind of authority. And it's really important to say this. It's not the ultimate authority, while we wait for perfect government, there are other authorities that we are subject to that we need to understand. There is household authority. Husbands leading wives, parents leading children. There is local church authority, elders, overseers over a congregation. So in principle, as we unpack these main ones, citizens submit to civil authorities in civil matters. See that? Romans 13. Children submit to parental authorities in household matters, Ephesians 6, 1-2. And members submit to elder authorities in local church matters, Hebrews 13, 17. Now, all of those are not only found in different passages, but they would be different messages themselves. Some of you recall Jeremy took us through the spheres of authority a couple of years ago, a very helpful study in understanding what are the spheres of authority that God has sovereignly appointed. We simply, for this chapter, this morning, need to be clear on what the sphere of authority, there are many, but which one is in view here in Romans 13? And the sphere of authority is civil. See that? The civil authorities. Later, we're actually going to see it's not ultimate, but of course that would be intuitive for the Christian. We know that. The second part of this verse doesn't surprise us. All right, with that, we return now to some necessary observations on this opening sentence in verse 1. Look at it with me, the first part. It says, let every person. That actually means literally, let every soul. That's the word behind person. Let every soul. Very intentional word. Now, why is that important to point out? In other words, the Christian is not exempt. Let every soul in Rome, 
Let every soul in Westmount Bible Chapel, right? And this is very, very important, depending on your leaning or experience or maybe understanding. Becoming a Christian, saints, listen, becoming a Christian doesn't pull you out from under earthly governments. Does that make sense? We want to think it does, especially when we don't like what earthly governments do, but it doesn't pull you out from under them. It doesn't pull you out from under them. In fact, quite the opposite is what we see here, and as we studied in our survey already, that pulls us to our second observation. Quite the opposite from, oh, I'm a Christian now, I'm out from earthly governments. Quite the opposite, far from retreating from societal authority or harboring insubordination or resistance. Here's the second thing, Christian, verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities. Look at that word there, be subject. Paul is going to use a word here that pushes us further than just mere obedience. This is so challenging this morning. This is not just obey the laws of society or be sure to do as the government says. It's saying more than that. Again, it's at least that, but it's much more. Be subject is a passive command. What does that mean? Be subject is literally this. We could render it if we were going to pull it apart now. Let yourself, allow yourself to come under Subjection, right? This is volition and will. Very hard for us at times. Grammatically, by the way, the command cannot be clearer, which brings us to a third observation. And we really need to see this. There is no condition. Look at verse 1. Well, let me ask it this way. Do you see a condition on the character of the governing authority? Do you see any conditions there at all? I mean, I know you want it to be there, but is it there? Paul does not say, be subject to the moral authority, to the kind authority. Be subject to the likable authority. And you say, amen, Paul, I can do that. It doesn't say that. Be subject to the authorities. Paul does not say, be subject unless the ruler is incompetent or unappealing. It doesn't say that, does it? What's noteworthy, by the way, we've studied Jesus and Paul and Peter Consider the authorities, the earthly authorities they were under. Do you remember those guys? Pilate, Herod, Nero. How appealing were they? In fact, far from appealing, they were cruel. And they killed Christians, right? Yet they gave us the text that we studied already this morning. If Jesus, Paul, and Peter submitted to ungodly earthly authorities, what's the implication for us? What is more, this text harmonizes with the text we read earlier on about submitting. And similarly in those texts, you do not find conditions. What's more, let's just take one example. Let's think of Crete with me for a moment. This just really grabs us if we think about it. I'm going to read you Titus 3, 1 again. It says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. These are to the Cretans, the faithful Cretans. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You know what's amazing about that command to Crete? Crete is a church, as everything we would expect, right? Working through the New Testament, newly birthed. A newly birthed set of churches on the island of Crete. Very raw. A raw group of new believers, and this is how they were characterized. I'm going to read you the first chapter, verse 12 in Titus. One of the Cretans, one of their own natives, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul's actually going to say that's true, actually. 
So submit to those kinds, very likely those kinds, right? Now, all kinds of things about leaders right in the same chapter. But the point is this. There's no conditions on the character of the authority and civil authority that we're called to either submit to or not, depending on how we feel about them. It's so, so important. And listen, even more under not only a wicked ruler, a lazy ruler, a gluttonous ruler, how about saints that are under a ruler who targets them? Oh, you're a Christian? I'm going to burn you. I'm going to persecute you. You would say, well, surely, God, I get a pass for that. Surely. They're burning us. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Now, this is the context for this letter. Very likely, the persecution of the saints. And Peter writes this to them. Listen closely. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Wow. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Keep that second part in mind when we come back to this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then this, 16 and 17. Live as people who are free. In other words, not that you're really and truly subjected to the wiles of these wicked rulers, right? What they do to you means nothing. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living, here it is, and he points to the real authority as servants of God. Romans 13, 1a. Honor, or B, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, and then this, fear God, honor the emperor. There's your theology of church and state right there. Fear God, honor the emperor, right? There it is, said so plainly. So we, church, are to be subject to the governing authorities, the wicked ones, the ones we don't like, all manner of governor we submit. Now, I will pause there because I have absolutely no doubt some of you are getting very antsy at this point, right? I know this room, and I understand, and I'm with you. You're like, really? And you're begging. You're, you're just begging to ask this question. But what if they ask you to sin? So they ask you actively to commit sin. Or how about this? Wait, wait, I have a question. I have a question. What if they ask you to refrain from something the Bible commands? All of this just sounds so total, what you're saying in the Bible says. What about that? So the government legislates sin or legislates disobedience to God. We're very familiar with that, of course. And the answer is easy, right? It should be. The answer is straightforward. We do not obey that. Right? It's very, very clear we don't. When a governing authority legislates sin or says don't do the things, right? And maybe not directly, but refrain from the things that God says to do, you say, we can't obey that. Can't obey. No, this is just as clear. Track with me. Recall the apostles in Acts 5.29. When ordered to stop teaching in Jesus' name, they said what to the governing authorities? They say, oh, hang on a minute. We have another apostle. He's going to get an inspired writing that says we need to submit to you, so we're going to do that. No. What did they say? We must obey God rather than men. That's how they taught us about authority in picture. Exodus 1, it goes way further back than that. Let's not abandon our Old Testament. 
Do you remember Pharaoh? We studied in Exodus, the governing authority in Egypt. He ordered the Hebrew midwives to do what? If it's a son, murder them. When the Hebrews come out, if it's a son, murder them. Wicked law. But the midwives, Exodus 1.17, the text says, feared God, and they what? They did not murder them. They disobeyed the state, right? To obey God out of fear of God. And of course, there was Daniel. So much we can say about Daniel and his fellow God-fearers. In fact, let's consider them for a moment, or consider Daniel for a moment. Let's go to Daniel. We've been in it already this morning. Daniel chapter 3. The pictures in Daniel are so instructive for us. And once again, we'll see nothing is new. In Daniel 3, as we come into this book again, we have the account of the the burning furnace, right? The fiery furnace, as it's called. And of course, you know that is the one that's the punishment for those that don't obey the law of the land. And what's the law of the land from that wicked ruler, Nebuchadnezzar? Here's my statue, gross paraphrase. Here's my statue, bow down to it. That's the law, and I'm making an edict. Statue of me, bow down, and you must do that. How do Daniel and his friends respond? Let's pick it up in 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. This is to the king, by the way, and a mighty king. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I want you to know or note here, Westmont, note the respect. They didn't call him a fox or they didn't call him a curse word. What did they say? O king. You see that? O king. We cannot worship this image, only God. That's polite disobedience, is it not? That is respectful disobedience. Great picture. Go to Daniel 6. So helpful, this book. Later on, Daniel, the older Daniel now. We have wicked magistrates or wicked civil servants that can't find anything wrong with Daniel. We've commented on this so many times. Verse 5 says they can't find anything wrong with him. So they come up with this law. So they need to find a law that attacks his God. Attacks his God. This is just, again, so instructive for us. Good verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, this is government. The counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance, this is a law, a civil decree, and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, there's a number of things we just have to make sure we point out by way of application. I want you to note, you could say this, and maybe, and people have done this, by the way. They'll go to this text and they'll say, this is not a law targeting saints specifically, Right? Really, it isn't. It's just about allegiance to one. But it's not, re- it's not true persecution because it's not targeting saints specifically. In fact, and you'll hear this, it says, look at what it says in verse 7, any God, and this is good, or man. God can get behind that, can't he? Right? We shouldn't do that. Any other man. There's some good in this. So I think we can obey this law because really they're not coming after us. 
and it has some truth in it. I want you to note also, it's a temporary law. Did you note that? For 30 days. For just a mere, that's it. 30 days. 30 days. A law with expiration. Certainly, you can hear the arguments. Well, if it's only for 30 days, it's not full time. God would understand that. Yet note above all of that how Daniel responds to that sinful law. I want you to know, by the way, what he does. He doesn't throw up any of those excuses, does he? Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where the windows opened and his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, if that doesn't strike you as stark this moment or this morning, then maybe we're not paying attention. Is that not so stark? Daniel, no excuse? Daniel, you just obey your God? You could have had... Well, no. Daniel does not and he cannot obey this wicked law. Forget 30 days, let alone 30 seconds. Thus, he civilly disobeys. Now, before we leave Daniel, this is where we're going, especially in two weeks. Let's take advantage and peek in one other place in Daniel. You see how helpful this letter is? Go to the first chapter of Daniel. So, so helpful. Daniel 1, the introduction. We are... Again, moving out of order in Daniel, but you'll understand why. This is the introduction of Daniel and his friends in the king's court. Presumably, Daniel and his friends are young, they're intelligent, strapping young Hebrew men, right? That are identified and pulled into the king's court. Well, they're assigned unlawful food according to their law. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, anyone reading the Old Testament law would recognize there are very likely food items at that table that these Hebrews cannot eat, right? So what do they do? Obey the magistrate or obey God? Daniel, what are you going to do? What we need to first note is Daniel doesn't rant and rave against the establishment or the man. He doesn't do that. Look at verse 8. This is what he does. Daniel resolved, that's internal first, that he would not defile himself with the king's food because it was unlawful or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, so he's making a civil appeal, to allow him not to defile himself. If you have an LSB in your hand, I love this translation. It says, Daniel sought permission. You feel that? Daniel sought permission. He entreated his government. Amazing. Daniel is a picture for us in the Old Testament of what it means to be subject to the governing authorities. Even when they legislate sin, the respect carries all the way through. Now back to Romans. Do you see that? Again, we'll... More to comment on this in verse 2 of Romans 13 in the weeks to come. But for now, let's stick with verse 1 back in Romans 13. And we see, and I hope this is clear now in our survey this morning, we're called to an attitude. Be subject points believers to a submissive, honoring, 1 Peter 2.17, approach to government. West Mountain again, more than obedience as we see with Daniel, as we see In Peter's letter, we are called to respect, yes, even honor. It's true in our relationship with government. That's what we're called to. That means when we law abide, we honor. It means when we disobey, we honor. Right? That's the the only implication from studying these texts rightly together. 
And Westmount, let me give you one big why and a couple hows here for maybe the questions you're asking at this point. How do I put all of this together practically? Well, let's deal with the why. This is the most important. Why do we be subject and respect and honor governing authorities? Well, it's right here in Romans 13.1. Did you catch it? This is why. Look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist, those civil authorities, have been instituted by God. You see that? This is the big why. An insubordinate, disrespectful, and less than honorable attitude, whether it's in obedience or disobedience, right, toward the governing authorities is a similar attitude in kind toward God. That's the point. And consider with me. Look at verse 1 again. All rulers are God's appointment. All rulers are God's delegate. They don't know that, of course, any of them. But they are. They're God's delegation. So it's like saying, God, that guy, that girl, that civil authority, that's a bad call, God. That's a bad call. I don't know about you. I don't want to be the one saying that to God. He appointed them. And he has a purpose. And reading our Old Testament, we recognize in wickedness we see purpose of God. I just don't want to be that guy questioning what God is doing and who he puts in place. Two, so that's why, and I'd say that's a big why, isn't it? That's a a powerful motivator. Let's do a two hows. One, how do we be subject? Well, you say, Jason, what does that look like? What helps our heart attitude here? Because my heart is struggling. There's so many wicked civil rulers. I understand that. And listen, my family can attest, this is a classic moment right now where I have to preach it to myself first. I need you to know that. Again, my family can attest to you. This is my struggle all week. Right, So I'm with you. I'm subjecting myself to the Word of God with you. This is a struggle. I'm not up here saying, oh, it's just so easy to just honor those that are there. No. So I'm with you in this. I feel the foremost of sinners in this regard. For one, so here's a how. We do not consider enough the responsibility of government. When's the last time you thought about the responsibility of government? Have you thought about it? And I want you to maybe do that right now. They don't just run a household or a church. They run provinces. They run states. They run countries. Have you thought about that recently? It's a big role, right? It's a big role. Would we agree? That's a huge role. And it's a big role that organizes services for us by the way that I think we all enjoy. Do we not? You ask any first worlder when they go to a second world or a third world how thankful they are for the organized infrastructure they have in the first world. Because governments have organized that. Now listen, this is no apologetic for the goodness of civil authorities. I'm trying to deal with our hard attitudes, right? To the big picture. We understand what a non-governed society would mean, and it's scary. It's scary. Another how for us, so that's one, the responsibility. Another how for us, we've read already this morning. Let me read it for you again in 1 Timothy 2. Here's a how. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Which people? Verse 2 will tell it. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There it is. Beloved, our submission to governing authority is helped by praying for them. 
this might be the second thing that brings us to our knees this morning. We haven't thought about the responsibility of government, and maybe lately we just haven't prayed for government, right? I trust, Christian, you do include prayers for government as part of your regular prayers because the Bible commands you to do that. They need, And believe me, they need it, don't they? And they need it not just for responsibility, they need it for regeneration, don't they? They need it that they would be saved. That's civil authority. That's a sphere in view here. As we close this morning, it's not the only sphere of authority in view. We end with this. We've looked at civil authority. Secondly, supreme authority. Now we get to the second sentence in chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is the supremacy of God's authority, and it's said two ways. Look at, again, look at it again with me. There is no authority except from God, and all authority that is, is God's institution, his appointment. This verse then is communicating two very important things for us this morning. Let's track all the way through. For one, it tells us that God is the supreme authority. It's stated plainly there in verse 1. There's no authority except from God. We could say it this way, to borrow language from 1 Timothy 1. He is the authority of authorities. Right? That's who God is. God is supreme over civil authority. Household authority. Local church authority. All authorities on earth. God rules supreme over all of them. But don't stop there. Books like Job reveal that God has supreme authority in heaven. Listen for the heavenly authority in subjection to the supreme authority. Listen to Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And guess who else showed up at that meeting? Satan also came among them. The authority of authorities. God Almighty. So God and only God has supreme authority. That's what verse 1 is saying. Only God has supreme authority. But verse 1 is also saying, along with that, all authority that is and ever has been is from God. So let's again just keep this tight. That is not just household authorities, wicked household authorities. Have you thought about that? Not just the parents, the wicked parents appointed by God for that child. Not just the local church authorities, but the corrupt ones too. Because you've said, how did God allow them to get into these positions? Appointed by God. We can include work authorities. That's a more modern uh, look at authorities, of course, in ancient times. A lot of the work was in the household, right? Slaves and masters and so on. But today... It is a sphere of authority in one sense, and we can include bad work authorities, bad bosses. And so we're clear back to civil authority for specificity's sake, all manner of character in earthly civil authority. Let's not lose this this morning. That's Pharaoh. We've talked about him already. Jeroboam. You know Jeroboam. Nebuchadnezzar. It's Nebuchadnezzar appointed by God. Herod, Nero, Hitler, Castro, appointed by God. George Washington, Obama, appointed by God. Trump and Trudeau, listen, Trudeau, both senior and junior, 
appointed by God. Appointed by God. All of them, God's institution. All of them, in the divine decree, God said, that guy is going to rule at this time, and that's my appointment. That is exactly what this verse is saying. Again, beloved, we don't like it, do we? But that's what the verse is saying. All authority on earth is by God's hand. All authority on earth is by God's hand. Consider what wisdom says to corroborate that. Proverbs 8, 15, 16. By me, wisdom says, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What do the prophets say? Do they corroborate this too? Jeremiah 27, verse 5, it is I, this is God, this is the Lord, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me, says Yahweh. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of who? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I've given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Then listen to verse 7. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Wow. That is supreme authority. And then, of course, Daniel. Just consider other portions. Just listen to the book of Daniel. It says it in so many places. Daniel 2.21. As we consider two visions and two dreams in this book. Daniel 2.21. He, this is the God of heaven. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And if we were to read the passage Gabe read for us, the end of chapter 4. If we had time and were to unpack all of the glories of that chapter, we would see this in another vision. Daniel 4, verse 17, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that, listen to this, the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. If we didn't get that, it's repeated again in verse 25. In the interpretation of the dream, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And if we didn't get that, then it's given again, as we heard this morning in verse 32. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And now we consider Jesus before the civil authority of his time. Right? Again, what did Jesus say in John 19, verse 10? He said to Pilate, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I consider Pilate, consider any civil authority before God? I have authority, you Jesus, to release you and authority to crucify you. And what did Jesus' family, uh, Jesus' uh, familiar retort? What was it? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given to you from where? Above. Above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you as the greater sin. That is supreme authority. Listen, beloved, all earthly rule, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament saints, Jesus, all earthly rule, this is the testimony we've been reading, is sovereignly appointed by God, every single one. Yet Pilate and Nebuchadnezzar and Trudeau all remind us, this is key, God instituted the system of government and appointed 
He ordered governors. And I imagine you're thinking this because it's true. That is very different. His ordering of them is very different from being responsible for their sinful actions, right? And then, of course, we're reminded here, that's, the text makes that clear. Ordering and appointing governors is very different from being responsible for their actions. One of the church fathers said this. This is helpful. Our senses, right? So our taste, our seeing, our hearing. Our senses are given to us by God. But that doesn't mean we use them for God, does it? Very helpful. It's an appointment. He's given us our senses to worship him, to give back to him. But we don't do that, do we, all the time? It's the same principle with divine authority or with governing authorities, I'm sorry. They have been given power. Civil authorities have been given power. They've been given a role. They've been given an office directly by God. But it doesn't mean they use that office to do good. What is more, appointed rulers by God will at times even persecute believers. Think about that. The ones appointed by God persecute the people of God under God's appointment. We see that with Pharaoh and Nero, for example. They murdered. Christ, of course, readied his disciples for this. And again, you know this very well. John 15, 18 to 21 He readied them. What did he say? If the world hates you, disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now consider Jesus says that knowing what earthly rulers do, appointing them. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So instructive. Knowing that God was sovereign over an evil ruler is how those early church saints and apostles got through that persecution. You thought about that? And maybe we need that for the years that are ahead of us. Can you keep in mind that there's civil authorities, but there is one greater over them, and it is a supreme authority who's appointed them? So whatever they do to us, right, is in subjection ultimately to the supreme authority. We, of course, have peace and security in that authority. And that supreme authority is not relegated to the heavenlies. As we close, we can't keep it there. I think we can function that way and think, yes, God is ruling somewhere in heaven, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And who is him? Jesus Christ, right? Him, through him. The supreme authority God in flesh. This is not a heavenly thing and an earthly thing. This is the confluence of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. The ultimate governor, the son of God, the king of kings. He came once to die a death to redeem his true subjects. And we read of it this way. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, by the way, obedient to wicked civil authorities to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Of course, his native subjects, Israel, led the way in rejecting him. But not everyone rejected Jesus. The remnant believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10.9. Yes, Christ is Lord, and that continues to be our cry today. That same Lord, the Christ, is returning soon. And when he does, we continue. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Westmont, that is the reality of authority. That has been, that always is, and that will come. Jesus shall reign. And you know that. That is the implication of supreme authority. That is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus shall reign. He will. So We can do nothing more now than sing that. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you that we can come before you under that consideration that your son will reign. Oh God, how we wait for that day. So help us to wait with eager longing, with respect and honor for all the institutes that you've appointed here on earth. Help us subject ourselves to every institution that you've given to us, never capitulating on truth, never caving always holding fast to the sure word. We do, Father, obey you rather than men. But you do call us for this time to obey you through men and those that do your will. So, Father, we thank you so much that you have given to us this word with its clarity this morning. Help us now as we look to apply and continue our fellowship in this place. In Christ's name we pray.